Welcome to Love and Compassion, a podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. Welcome to another episode of the Loving Compassion Podcast with Giselle. If you're listening to us on audio, don't forget to write a review. And if you're watching us on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel for more exciting content. Our guest today has been working for the not-for-profit sector for over 27 years. For the last 10 years, he's been working with organizations dedicated to preventing and ending homelessness. Currently, he's the CEO for the Blue Door Support Services, a charity in York Region, working to rapidly rehouse men, families, and youth, as well as provide them with access to health and employment. Michael's past roles include a long-term stint at the MCA, CEO of 360 Kids, and most recently, Raising the Roof. He's a Brock University and Georgian College graduate and is very proud of his board work with a Family Day GTA and with the innovative and amazing Away Home Canada team. Lastly, he's also the producer and lead interviewer for the incredible podcast, Out of the Blue. Please join me in welcoming Michael Braithwaite. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm good. I'm good, Giselle. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you very much for being here today. It's a real pleasure to have you here chatting with us. Um, I've been following your work for a little while, and I feel that all the work that you do is really focused on compassion for people facing homelessness and maintaining the dignity of people. And so I was interested in chatting with you because I think you guys have a lot of, you've done great work and have a lot of insights. First, I wanted to know what got you interested in working with homelessness. Well, it's kind of, there's a a few different things that were at play. I think like many people in life, I've always sought and, and craved a purpose, right? And I worked in social services for a long time. Uh, with the YMCA. My last stint with the YMCA from 2006 to 2010, it was interesting because I worked at the Flamborough Y and it's kind of, it's a beautiful facility, but it's in suburbia and, you know, it it serves a great purpose. Yeah, for sure. Keeps people healthy. And then uh, my boss at the time, uh, Hamilton, the downtown Hamilton Y is really gritty, tough place. Um, And he said, he said, would anyone be interested in coming to manage here? And he was joking because it's rough. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. I said, put me in. I said, I love that. I miss that. I want purpose. I, I actually want to be in a place where this is so needed. Um, so I jumped to the chance. And coincidentally, uh, that was the only Y in the area or one of the only Ys in Canada that still has a residence. So they have a men's residence, wow. 174 beds. But here's kind of the strange thing. What, the why, the reason the why had residences back in the day was, you know, if you're traveling, it was a cheap way to get a room for a night stay and for students. Mm. And what has happened since uh, the, the late 80s, early 90s, when homelessness really started to ramp up, is it became the cheapest independent living in the city. So if you're on assistance, on Ontario Works, you could afford it. It's three seventy-five a month. You can afford it, but it's just a room with a desk, a bed, a dresser, shared washrooms, no kitchen. But what happened there is because it's independent living, you had 174 men, uh, many older men, but with uh, many with addictions or uh, mental health challenges or physical health challenges that weren't served. There's no services. So it was a bit of a disaster. Like it was a tough, tough place. And I saw firsthand what happens when you you have housing without supports um 
And actually, it's funny, I followed my, um, my wife into the work. She was doing the work already with Fred Victor, and I saw the purpose she had. So when an opportunity came to work, I'd, I'd worked with at-risk at youth in the past and loved the work. And when an opportunity came up with 360 kids in, in New York region around homelessness and, and helping them escape homelessness, I <clears throat> jumped to the opportunity. It was very fortunate that someone took a chance on me. And that was 10 years ago. And, and you know what? I mean, I just... The purpose of it, understanding it, like most Canadians, I think before I started, my my vision of homelessness was um, the guy in the street corner of downtown Toronto, right? And, and it's funny, when you ask younger kids who will actually, they don't have a filter and they'll describe what homelessness looks like, usually they describe um, me, <laughs> an older, older <laughs> white guy with a beard. Um, so, um, but, but that's what we think, right? And it's not because Canadians are bad people or it's just what we know we grew up with. So we think that's, you know, it's a Toronto problem. And then when you learn more about it and the reason we do a lot of this work on podcasts or social media, et cetera, is really creating that awareness. I think once people know really a lot more about homelessness, they're, they're set to take action. And so that really, you know, as I learn more and more, and I'm always learning and talking to people with uh, lived experience, we call lived experts, and what the needs really are and what the challenges and issues, it's to me become just, you know, a passion uh, project in life. Yeah, wow. Um, what do you think led to the increase in homelessness between the 80s and 90s? Since you well, it was policy change, right? It's, it's direct, uh, directly linked to policy around stopping building the, the government say hey we're, we're not going to build any more social housing affordable housing anymore mm -hmm. and you just saw the numbers in the states and in canada homelessness was always there but not to the level of it it just skyrocketed so now you know we're 30 years behind trying to catch up right it's an yeah. ongoing um type of thing and also uh you know with policy changes too around who uh, who's paying for what and in different services, right? So around defunding mental health services. Um, and it's interesting, we were talking with uh, a, a nun, Sister Mary uh, Scullion in, uh, in Philadelphia, and she was saying too, what was wonderful years ago is they went away from institutionalizing people with mental illness. Yeah. However, when they did that, which was wonderful and the right thing to do, they didn't do that with the right backing of housing. So yes, it's great because they don't belong in institutions. They belong in homes like everyone else, but you have to have the homes and services to support that. So that contributed uh, as well. And, and the, if you look at two social assistance rates in Ontario and in, in, uh, the Harris years were slashed were cut down and they've never responded back up. So if someone's yeah. income through whatever reason is, is Ontario works is $600 a month and the GTA, you can't get a room a room for $600 a month. So you're living in, in whatever accommodations you can find. Sometimes that's the, the street. Sometimes that's sharing a room. Sometimes that's renting someone's couch, believe it or not. That happens wow. on Kijiji. So, so while rentals and housing costs have gone way up, um, income supports have remained steady or declined. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I often wonder about these policies in terms of whether the people creating the policies understand the impact of said policies, because... You know, one of my pet peeves is that it tends to be privileged people that make policies, right? And they don't have the lived experience uh, of living the policies. Yeah, and I understand. I mean, I think sometimes working in government is is a thankless job. There's only so yeah. much money to go to so many places. Where do you invest? Um, and you're not going to make everyone happy. But 
housing is that that one of those core things right and it's a right it's a human right now we've established yeah. that um and if you you call it a human right you also have to put the resources behind it to make Correct. sure you can bring that to life too right so good policy matters and it's hard to roll back you're right and now we're seeing that too there's a saying that nothing for us without us and that goes for indigenous people that goes for marginalized communities but let's have those voices at the table to make those decisions that will directly affect them. For sure. Absolutely. Agreed. Do you think that some of the reasons for the policy changes have to do with the myth of homelessness in terms of what people believe about homeless people? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I mean, the stigma around it, right? Um, and she's trying to think of who famously said, you know, uh, they should just get a, you know, just get jobs and then all will be well, right? Yeah. Um, and you look at that statement now. So I just read in the Toronto Star this morning, you have personal support workers right now who are absolute heroes during a pandemic. Uh, they have to work a minimal of 50 hours a week to survive in the GTA, to live in the GTA. Oh so we have people living in poverty, supporting people in poverty, which is just a, a darn shame. Uh, and you talk about compassion. Um, I have not only do I have compassion for people experiencing homelessness, a, a huge part, and for the people that I work with who are on the front lines who do much more important and direct impactful work than I do, um, I'm, I'm driven to always make sure that they're making a living wage because it's, it's, it's disgusting when they don't. You know, I, I can't sleep well yeah, at night if we're absolutely. not, and we're it's, not it's, doing it. Sorry, I, I totally ag agree with what you're saying. I mean, I was just thinking about the fact that COVID has highlighted the issue of homelessness and some people don't have a home to go to, to, you know, to get away from COVID. I think it's shifted our perspective in terms of how we define heroes. And like you said, the PSWs every day that are going around helping people that are trying to do the best they can as well as make a living. So I think it's given us some perspective, I would like to think. Um I'm just wondering what you thought might be some of the other impacts of COVID around homelessness. Well, I can't quote the stats exactly. Some good information came out a couple of days ago, just talking about um, the likelihood of someone experiencing homelessness. And you'll notice I always say experience, so a person experiencing homelessness yeah. because we don't want to label the person, right? Once they start to believe that's who they are, that's dangerous yeah. too, right? So it's the experience they're having. And I say that because 80% of people that come into emergency housing, it's one one and done. They come in, they get some supports, they're out. We never see them again. There's 20% that have much higher needs that are a little more challenging, but 80%, right? So it's, it's experience. Uh, and we hope to cut down on those experiences. But, you know, they're, they're far more likely because of the, the situation they're in. They're, they're far more likely to be riding public transit and having to go to work because they don't have sick benefits if they're working, right? So they have no choice if they, they want to keep whatever little they have. They have to go to work and take that risk. They're in precarious. Uh, they, they might not have the PPE. They, um, and in general, you know, you are, when you're living on the streets, it takes a toll on your health. We talked with uh, Dr. Sandy uh, Bachman, who's the head of the Canadian Medical Association, um, about the links of health and homelessness. And he was talking about, he said, I can tell someone's health by their postal code. Isn't that crazy? He said, if wow. you give me your postal code, I can tell you generally how healthy you'll be. And that just means that, that healthcare is not equal uh, across, right. right? So where you're living, how you're living, um, the average 
lifespan of someone living on the streets is 47. So I'm 48 years old, right? So that that uh, that, that hits hits home, right? It really does take its toll. You present much older, so you're you know, you're precarious health already, and and so you're at risk. And so with COVID around now, having said that, in York Region where I work, because we've worked, the team is so amazing, not just at Blue Door, but at all our partners across the region, the region itself, the United Way, um, our paramedics, um, our public health system, we work so diligently at um, following all the rules, being safe, that we, we haven't had major outbreaks, you know, knock on wood. And so we're very, very proud of that. And we've got an isolation site that Blue Door runs, and it hasn't been overflowing with people. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. You said so much there. <laughs> um, one of the things that you said that really stood out to me is the piece around people that are facing homelessness versus the traditional word that people use, which is homeless people. And I think that's really, really important in helping not only the people experiencing homelessness understand that this is not a personal trait, but rather that this is an experience and also helping other people to um I would say kind of rehumanize homeless people, because I think that my understanding when I've had conversations with people who have experienced homelessness is that they faced a lot of stigma. They faced a lot of um, shame and demeaning behavior. Some of them have actually been beat up or continuously get beat up when they're homeless. And um, their experiences, from what I've heard, was that, you know, people are kind and then they will give stuff in the beginning and then, but then they expect them to do something different. And then if they don't, then they kind of withdraw that affection because they're not meeting the expectations of that person to help themselves. And, I, you know, I'm sorry to use the quotations. Well, listen, quite often, you know, everyone's curious, what does homelessness look like with the face of homelessness, right? And I, I mentioned that before. If you ask kids, they're much more honest. Uh, filters are removed. And they talk about what they see on the streets of downtown Toronto. 80% of youth who experience homelessness is due to family breakdown, right? So the face of homelessness is you, me, uh, any one of us. There is no face, right? You, you can't tell by looking at someone. In extreme cases, sometimes you can say, hey, this person is going through a hard time. Um, but especially with youth, youth are, if you say you're a homeless youth to someone who's actually living on the street, they're, they're very defensive. No, I'm not, because they don't want that stigma either, right? They, they just want to be like their friends. And so they'll go to great lengths to hide it, that their friends have no idea that they walked around all night. They're sleeping in class, not because oh they're lazy, because they're exhausted and they were scared, right? Um, but yeah, that stigma of they're just lazy, get a job. I mean, think about family breakdown. 50% of all marriages end in divorce and divorce can be crippling to the kids mentally, the trauma plus the financial burden. And you can, once stable family can find themselves all of a sudden without a safe place to call home, kids just simply, Hey, I'm going through school. I'm getting great marks. I have friends and I have the courage to come out to my parents and they're saying, Hey, you know, here's the choice. Don't be gay or, or, you know, you can't live here. That's not a choice. So they don't live there and they're now on the streets. Right. And, and uh, that, I, I tell you, I've done, we've done um, these events where we get adults in the middle of winter to spend one night out on the streets and youth write their scenarios. Here's what I went through. Here's what you should do. And it's one night. These experiences, I've done it a number of times <clears throat> and it's, it's brutal. You know, I've done it alone. We usually put people in partners uh, for safety, but I've done it alone. It, it's cold. It's lonely. It's isolating. It, you know, you're, uh, I can see how youth would be terrified um, and, and the next day when you don't get sleep, your mental health 
how it falls apart. And that's one night. I mean, imagine doing that on every night, right? So the, the stigma really around it, and it's not just people who are living rough on the streets. There's people in precarious housing. If you went in, you like, no one should live in this basement that's full of mold with six other people with, with you know, uh, facilities that aren't working well, um, that kind of thing too, right? I mean, it's, uh, I think when people understand what it really is, when usually you talk about youth homelessness too, you're saying, have you ever had one of your kid's friends stay over for a couple of weeks? Well, yeah, that kid was, was homelessness, right? Like that's yeah. someone experiencing it, but you wouldn't see that because they're just a friend of your kids who you helped out. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it, and I think we have a lot of systems too that when you stigma, it's not laziness, it's a system that's broken. And I'll, I'll say, for instance, child welfare system yeah. that I think over 70% of kids who experience homelessness um, had one time or another been in the child welfare system. That system's broken, right? At the age of 19, your birthday gift is good luck. You know, you're, you're done. You're the, the, any safety and security you had is now over. The service is provided. And, you know, they're realizing that and they're changing that. But we have broken systems. We have broken, you know, a kid makes a mistake at 17, 18, um, does some time, uh, and then forever on cannot get a safe place to call home. Um, the, the school system when you, you kids drop out or get kicked out because of their situation. Um, so we, we've, we've been a society for the longest time too. That's all we've done is react to homelessness. But now we've started to realize that we've got to think a little forward and upstream and think, what are the things we could do? How do we fix systems? How do we do things? So we prevent new people from coming into it, prevent evictions. So many people too, and I'm sorry to ramble, but no, this they're, handed a, they're handed an eviction notice and they go, okay, and they leave. But you could fight it. You could do a payment mm. plan. You, maybe it's a legal eviction. You could, but they don't know that. They just accept it, right? Or their literacy isn't there, so they can't read the lease. They right. don't know. Um, and so, you know, there's so many. If you just had a little, we just had a little awareness education around that. How many more people could we prevent from falling in, into it? And if Canadians understood, like 250,000 Canadians each year experience homelessness. And unfortunately, that number is growing and probably will grow more in this pandemic. It could be your neighbor. It could be you. Um, you know, we all have, yes, government plays a part, but it's on all of us to be compassionate, to be kind without expectations, as you said. Yeah. Wow. It's so spot on. I mean, you're right. The systems that we have designed, and I use the word we because we're all responsible for it. Our level of consciousness is one where we don't see each other as brothers and sisters. We think some people are deserving and other people aren't deserving. And it's so true. Like all of these systems that we've created are about punishment, are about, um, you know, like you have to pull up yourself by your bootstraps. And it's not, they're not based on caring for each other as if we were one family. It's not based on understanding that we're all interconnected and that my wellness depends on your wellness and your wellness depends on mine and I think until we start to see things differently I don't know what's going to change and I, I want to also go back to the point you had made about services until mental health addictions and all those pieces are essential services they're deemed essential we're going to continue to have these other catch-all systems such as the child welfare system and all these other different systems one of the things that I, I really appreciate most about your organization is that you not only focus on rehoming, but you also offer supports for little people and also counseling and wellness. 
Um, why is it so important to provide kind of a holistic approach to ending homelessness? Yeah, that's, that's a great question too, right? And mostly we've, we've discovered this through doing it wrong, through mistakes. Um, for the longest time, it was, hey, let's get this person clean. Let's get them a job. Let's make sure they're all this stuff. And then we'll get them housing. And, and he, all that stuff is almost impossible to do if they don't have a safe place to call home. So we'd fail, right? So in, in the, the 90s, and, and there's this uh, Sam uh, Samaras who came up with this idea. He's the father of housing first. And it was a simple concept of, hey, if we just put, get people in housing first and then wrap all those things around them, you'd be amazed at what happens, right? When you have an address, when you that anxiety is eased, that you don't have to look for a place to sleep, that you'll be safe. And he did. He, the experiments were done where they would work with some people that were uh, some of the most chronically uh, homeless people and, and, and that were, you know, and, and the, not only is there a human cost to this where you're saving human lives, but it's saving a ton of money when you do housing first, right? A shelter beds, emergency shelter are, are really, really expensive, not to mention all the stays in hospital. Someone who, who's chronically homeless will, will go to the ER five times more than someone who's housed, right? Um, so there's all these costs, but so we, we, we've finally got it right. And then we started putting people in housing, but you also have to have supports that match to the individual. So supports that youth need are different than a senior are different than, um, you know, uh, as a family. So, so you wrap those supports around them and without, you know, what happens too sometimes is we can put people in housing if they don't have a link to that community, if there's not a sense of community, if they don't have links to healthcare, um, sometimes they sabotage that housing and end up back in emergency housing. And I, I see, you'll, you'll notice too, I say emergency housing, not shelter. That's another stigma too. Shelter yeah. is such a tough stigma to oh it. Gosh, this is someone's home. Children. So we call it housing, emergency housing for the time. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's that's the other thing too, is that we don't realize you need to have those aftercare supports that, you know, so let's say I'm in emergency housing at Porter Place at Blue Door. So I'm a senior man, I'm 55 years old. I go in there, I've now got, you know, 29 new buddies who are in the same situation who get it. I'm, I'm there for maybe a month. I have friends, I have staff that care that I'm there, that I'm healthy, that whatever. So I, I've almost got like, I've got this family, this makeshift family. And then you put me in housing and no one cares when I come home. No one cares if I'm fed. No one's checking in on me. And so that sense of community and connecting them to people, and maybe they're better off living with a couple of their friends from that, you know, it, it's, it's so important. Otherwise that housing falls apart, right? So those supports around it, the healthcare piece too, if you're not healthy, you don't have links and, and we're constantly working on that, um, that we saw actually during COVID um, when we're running the isolation site, we attached a nurse the isolation site and having that direct immediate healthcare, That's you sit great. down and say, okay, let's go through, let's make sure your meds are, what a difference, right? So if we did that for everyone who came in, not just the isolation site, what a difference that would be. So we're working with people like Dr. Uh, Andrew Bond in, in Toronto and others to listen, I, I'm okay with it not being my original idea. It's not about me. There's great ideas all over the world that mm -hmm. we can borrow and duplicate. We do that a lot. And people are so gracious uh, in social services. So yeah, take it. I don't need credit just make it happen it's so I, I you know um so health is there and then employment plays a part too i mean but it's meaningful employment uh yeah. giselle we we for years again not that it's wrong but we did things in a sense that it was like well there's homelessness or employment where um, people say it's good enough 
And uh, when you talk about dignity, why is good enough good enough? So whether it's, hey, let's build a better tent. That's not what we need to do. This is housing. Now they don't need a better tent. And, and, and we see this. Here's a great sleeping bag where people can survive outdoors. I don't want them to survive. People to thrive and live, right? Yes. We need housing. And it's well-intended. So I don't want to, yeah, but no, same, no, same thing with employment. For the longest time, we take a youth to say, hey, awesome. I got you a job at uh, Tim Hortons. You're going to work horrible hours. You're not going to make enough to live. Um, you're not going to have a great purpose. And then we wonder why they fall apart. And the youth's like, yeah, see you later. I'm done. Yeah. Right. But then we start to think like we developed this program again. We copied it from somewhere else. It's a social enterprise called Construct. And so there's a massive need for people in the trades. Um, and, and we run them through a program where they get linked to the trades and then they make uh, they actually come out of that program into jobs where they have great purpose. They can point at a building. I, I was part of that. I did that. I have purpose. Uh, you know, I complete something each day and they're well-paying jobs, meaningful, well-paying, and I can truly escape poverty. So you, you do that when they're ready, right? So it, it's, you know, all these things are linked and at different stages, you cannot have, uh, housing is health. You can't, as you said, when the, when the mandate is um, stay safe, stay at home, stay healthy, stay at home, if you don't have that home as the core piece, you, you yeah. can't do any of those things. For sure. And some people, home isn't a safe space to be at. Um, yes. I love that your organization focuses on empowering people. It's yes, the purpose is to end homelessness, but it's also to empower those individuals to understand that this is a chapter of their life, but also you're giving back their people's dignity, respect, and for, to help them remember their own power. And I think that's the problem with a, a number of the systems we have. They're disempowering. They're based on pity, which is a very low vibration. Whereas I think you're seeing these people as human beings, human beings that just need opportunities to be their best selves, to live their dreams and to do these things. And I think any policy that is has that at its core is going to be meaningful. Um, so I, I've kind of, I've been kind of following the literature on basic income and basic, like basic minimal housing. And the research is there that shows it does give people dignity and it has great outcomes. And yet there's still a hesitation for us to move forward. I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were. Yeah, actually as recent as, and we're trying to bring it to Ontario, um, Claire, who we've had uh, on Claire, I think it's Claire Elizabeth Williams, who we had on the pod or, or out of the blue podcast, she did this experiment with UBC out in uh, Vancouver where they took 200 people and randomly 100 of those people. Now, these are people who, who didn't have heavy addictions or mental health challenges, mm -hmm. but they're experiencing homelessness in some form. They gave 100 of them $7,500 for a year, and then they followed, and 100 didn't get those. And just uh, the, the difference is insane, like the, the positive benefits of being housed, being safe, getting work. Some of them still had money. Uh, and believe it or not, with more money, the actual use of drugs and alcohol dropped right? And that's probably a direct link to how they mentally, how they feel physically and mentally, right? So it's, it's there. You've seen people during serve, they're like, oh, you know, I could breathe. I, I knew I had that and I didn't have that, that weight and I can move forward my mental health, my, um, you know, and, and also I even point to when I run to the, the wage subsidies at first, you had people um, who were saying, wow, like for once I felt my paycheck, maybe I could put a little aside, I can move forward, I could do things. Yeah. For a lot of people, it's simply 
just an income piece. It really is that pushes them out. They need that little bit and you'll never see them again. Right. And, and yeah. you know, I think people sometimes get scared of that bottom line figure or won't it be, won't, won't it encourage them to be lazy and not work? No, no. You know, like people want to have a purpose. Yeah. I'm sure there's some people who, who might not. And that, then there's other things that, uh, um, that, you know, there's other issues there, but I think for the most part, people have issues. And when you know that your housing is taken care of, that you're not going to uh, have to look around for your next meal, that you have a little bit of um, security, I think then you start to say, hey, maybe I'll go back to school. Maybe I'll, what yes. other job can I, how do I make a difference? Where you, you go to from thrive, you start to thrive instead of just surviving. surviving. And looking for that um, next bit. So I, I think I'm a huge supporter of basic income because it, it works. I mean, the, the countries that have that in play, you know, the Denmarks and, and Finland and others who have who've done some of that work, you see the difference. Those are the countries that are way closer to ending homelessness, you know, those hundred people right away. And we're going to bring that um, data has power and you have to keep showing people. We, we know the answer. Yes. But you need something to lean back on and bring back to the taxpayers. Say, hey, we did this because this is what the data shows, right? But there, are, there still will always be that kind of thought of, ooh, free money, free money. You know, what are we gonna? But this is how we support each other. This is compassion, right? We're a mm-hmm. very wealthy country in Canada. Why do we have two hundred fifty thousand people experiencing homelessness? Why do we, you know? And, and think about the money you'd save in emergency shelters and in hospitals and emergency rooms where they're keeping people longer because they have nowhere to go, the mental health strain, the addictions, all those different things that that income and that security uh, could bring a relief to. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what you said is so spot on around the, the, the kind of the myths that really hold back, oh, people are going to take advantage of the system. And some people do take advantage, but it's a, it's a small group and those people probably need additional help. And I think we tend to make policies to punish the few, but it impacts everyone. And so and it negatively impacts everyone. And so if you really want to address the few, then address the few. But we don't. We make kind of these blanket policies for the exception management, yeah. but they end up being kind of really dehumanizing, which is really kind of unfortunate. Well, you know, it's funny where, I mean, we're a society, I think that right right now in, in politics and votes are won on sound bites, right? So you can make yes. simple <laughs> statements like that and people don't do the research that they, 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 it becomes fact, right? Unfortunately, we've seen yeah. that, you know, south of us for, for the last four years. And fortunately mm-hmm. that's coming to an end, but even in Ontario, you know, we, the, the sound bites of this is what, and you actually get many marginalized people believing that too and, and turning on each other almost. <laughs> so yeah. they're not supporting each other. That's and so and that's, that's a shame rather than the facts. I, I want to, you know, and it's even, you know, your, your podcast, you talk about compassion and thinking differently. And I, I wanted to mention to ending and preventing homelessness. And, and I, I had a reality check with this too, right? It, it's sometimes people, it, it's changing your expectations. So if you see someone on the street and you give them, something don't you know when people like that's the number one of the number one questions what do i do do i give or not am i enabling them to do drugs or whatever and say well listen it's a very personal uh decision to make and you know you do it without expectation that three dollars you gave that person isn't going to change their life but that little bit of kindness and compassion you just showed them might 
or may not, right? Because they're thinking about the next three. What am I going to get, right? And I, I say that um, because, you know, I, I, I was outside of a gas station once and this guy ran up to me and said, give me a sandwich. Not please, not, and, you know, in my ego, oh, so rude. So I'm like, what are you talking about so rude? This guy's trying to survive. So I went inside and bought him a sandwich and, you know, he didn't say thank you. Oh, no. You know, again, my wounded ego. Um, and he's like, get me another one. And I said, hey, man, you know, uh, okay. And then I thought, he's not worried about how my feelings are. He's, he's trying to survive. He's like, all right, I got a sandwich, but what about tomorrow? And what about, you know, so when you put all that aside and say, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to put my feelings aside and being polite manners and, and understand where this guy is coming from. And I'd be in that exact same spot if I were him, right? And wasn't getting the supports that I needed. And I think our expectations always, th these are not after school specials. I mean, addiction and mental health and trauma. Trauma plays a huge mm -hmm. part in homelessness. Aside from that, you know, all the stuff that happens to us that, that puts us in a certain place. And we were talking with the traumaologist once. He said, you know, I'll give you for example. He says someone could be kind of humming along. You've got them in housing. They're, they're along the right path and they're, they're doing great. And they talk to you, Mike, and, and your beard reminds them someone abused them about a beard and, and bam, they snap and that trauma again, you know, so, so dealing with trauma as well. And, and um, they're not after so, so many times people can uh, escape homelessness and sometimes it repeats, right? Because addictions and, and those demons come back, right? And, or we didn't do it right. We didn't give them the right supports or the supports were limited to two months and that's not how it works. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so, yep. but, you savor the small victories, you know, you show mm -hmm. that person a little kindness. When you pass someone on the street and, you know, if they're agitated or, you know, don't, don't approach, you know, if it's not safe, never put your personal safety at risk. But even in your heart, if you look at them with compassion and kindness, and, and for many people, especially street homelessness, just make eye contact if you mm -hmm. can, if it's safe, be kind. It's tougher now too, right? I don't carry cash. A lot of people don't carry cash. But if you look at someone and say, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I don't have any cash or can I buy a coffee or whatever, it, it, you're going to feel okay for that. And don't expect that coffee you buy to change their life. <laughs> yes. you know, lower your expectations <laughs> a little bit. Um, but yeah. you'd be surprised that, you know, if they've had 50 people look at them with disdain and disgust, and, and you show them that bit of kindness, how maybe that changes their day and puts them on a different path, right? It's not the money. It's not what you got them. It's the fact that you recognize them as a human being. Remember, when you see that person on the street, that's someone's brother, that's someone's dad, grandfather, sister, aunt. They are humans. We are all humans. They are part of our society and a meaningful part. Don't see them as a homeless person. See them as a person yeah. um, and, and be kind. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, that's so spot on. You know, you mentioned the, the, the issue of expectations. And I think that's so true. And that's what this gentleman was telling me when, when we were chatting about, um, you know, it's people expect to, you know, like to change. So, so you're giving people money. Is it for yourself or is it for them? And if it's for yourself, you need to be honest about that, right? Because if you're giving them what they're asking you for with no expectations and you're doing it just out of love and you know how are they going to use it or whatever that's up to them if you're choosing to give that money because you you want to give it and I think that's the piece about the expectations you know people expect them to well you know you should shouldn't still be here after so many years still collecting money why haven't you helped yourself and so on 
And I don't think people understand, or there isn't enough curiosity. There's not enough curiosity about what led, instead of what's wrong with you, like what happened to you, right? And that's the difference about you were talking about the trauma-informed practice. And that is what I love about your podcast. I think one of the things you're able to do is to share the lived experience and have people who are the lived experts come and talk about their stories. And so I think in that way, your podcast Out of the Blue is really helping bring that awareness about the trauma, bring that awareness about people's stories that the, the people who experience homelessness are not one dimensional. They're not just these bad people who are making bad choices. I was wondering if you could share what some of the things you've learned about those with lived experience. Yeah, I, listen, every experience is a, is a little different, right? And I think that, you know, lived experts too, we, uh, here's the other thing too, is that a lot of times we are asking lived experts to come to the table, share their stories, do that. And that's work too. Oh, yeah. And that should be paid work, right? So we've made a better effort to say, if we're going to ask you to speak at an event, do that. If I ask someone else, usually they expect to be paid. Why is it different for someone, a lived expert who's having to relive that trauma and be careful that they're ready, that you're not re-traumatizing them by asking them to go through that. It's a tough uh in Toronto and in York region, there's a lot of what we call peer support workers. So they're hired because they, they have that and they're, they're peer support workers. But it, it's very tricky because when they see someone using all that, you know, it can really um, re-traumatize people going through. So for it, it's, and don't see, I mean, they're, they're lived experts, but, um, you know, they're people first and what are their, you know, their credentials there. They have stories to tell. I think, you know, it's so so often, sometimes people would criticize and say, you're, uh, you're extorting or you're, you're kind of people with, with, uh, with these stories, they're telling them or you're putting them out there as I said, listen, they have stories to tell and you don't. So we had recently, uh, an older gentleman, John joined me on city, uh, city TV and we were, and, and the staff said he was walking with his head high. He had someone actually cares what I have to say. I'm just John who's, you know, for many years I've accepted myself as homeless John, you know, as this guy who no one respects no one. But when you give people a platform where their voice, um, you know, I remember we we had uh, it was it's interesting we hockey helps the homeless had this big thing and they were supporting 360 kids and, and we had this uh, young man eugene and and he said yeah i'll talk and i don't think he really thought much about it yeah i'll share my experience and we got there and there's 500 people and i remember he walked in and i could see the look of terror on his face being oh. like oh man and he said hey, hey mike i'm gonna go to the bathroom and he disappeared for about 40 minutes and i thought oh and so we went to look and he didn't go to the bathroom i thought he was in and i thought he ran and i found him I said, Hey bud, what's going on? I said, you want to run? You want to bail? That's okay. You want to bail? That's cool. Like you don't have to do this. He's like, oh, no, I'll do it. I'll do it. But he, he said, I, I thought of it. I was halfway. I was on yeah. my way out. But when he got up there and he wasn't a polished speaker and he's not a professional speaker, like in, but, and all night, everyone had been making noise and whoever was up there, it was like, a, it, you know, they weren't, you know, they were having fun. But when he spoke and you can hear a, a pin drop and the respect and, and then he, you know, he finishes and 500 people are on their feet clapping. And I'm thinking maybe never again, will he have this level of respect? And so people are coming up to him and saying, great, you were awesome. It was great. Thank you so much for having the courage. And he's, you know, I, you could just see how it's yeah. like, wow, man, I actually, 
people want to hear what I have to say. So, so it is that you talked about it before that empowerment of, I have a story that can change lives. I can help others. I can help others maybe by telling my story. So people step up to support. So I'm helping hundreds of others, you know, you're empowering them to do that. They have powerful stories to tell and share. And it, it's way more impactful than me standing up there and talking about it. I think we all want to be seen and heard. I think that's just a basic human need, right? Like to have voice and participation and be seen as an individual. And so that's why I appreciate the platform and to be able to do that and learn from their experiences. It's funny you say that. Everyone wants to matter, right? Yeah. At uh, 360 Kids, we, we had to come up with a, you know, what was our, our kind of our, our line that we we're going to put with the logo and it was everyone wants to matter like every kid matters like we want to make you matter everyone matters so let's make that happen mm -hmm. yeah i had a colleague of mine um who knew somebody who had a sign on their desk that said you matter and so it was face outward so whoever he was sitting across and talking to them basically read that like which i thought was so so powerful um, a, a lot of the funds you raise, and I don't know if this is accurate, are via fundraising and donation. Is that right? Well, we're supported. I mean, we're, we're, we have some core support through government. Mm -hmm. So about, um, I'd say about 90% comes through government, United oh, Way, and then we raise about yeah. 10%. Now, oh, okay. we'd love to change that model because as governments change mm -hmm. and mandates change, you're, yeah. it's, there's a risk, right? Um, a Covenant House has the reverse of that because they've been at this for years and they're brilliant and so that's great because you can you have more flexibility in what you do how you do it yeah, um sure. and so that's where you want to be but fundraising plays a huge part in giving you flexibility to meet needs and and be agile where government funding doesn't always have that flex that's very true i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the raising the roof toques and how that supports in ending homelessness yeah i mean Interesting, that two campaigns been around for over 20 years and, and they, they continue on with it. I mean, this year's a, a tough year, but I think it was, you know, like anything, a small group of volunteers that wanted to make big change happen. And 20 some odd years ago, they said, what can we sell or give as a token um, to people to, to really think about homelessness? And in Canada, I mean, what's more iconic than the toque, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, the same warm your head, warm your heart, do your part. Um, and that's what you're doing. You know, everyone needs a toque. Um, and that's very Canadian. And it's keeping you warm. And in buying that toque, not only every time you put that on your head and there's some warmth there, maybe you're thinking about you're a part of the solution. You know, so yeah. it's a really cool and <clears throat> affordable way to raise funds. And what they do is, I mean, so raising the roof, uh, works with organizations all over Canada. So it becomes a fundraiser for them. So they sell the toques, they, they get uh, uh, a certain percentage of the toque sales and it becomes a fundraiser. It's a good way to engage volunteers across the country. Mm -hmm. And it's great to create awareness too. You see someone else with that little raising the roof symbol on the toque. <laughs> um, you're like, ah, you know, you bought one too. You care yeah. too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. You guys also have housing projects? Where volunteers come together to build homes. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that. Well, you know what we do. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, when we're thinking about ending and preventing homelessness, you have to be innovative. And so yeah. here and there, there, there's thousands of vacant homes scattered throughout Canada. And so you look for them and you say, all right, look, you know, if we can raise the capital 
to repurpose this home, then we can have 20, 30 years of housing, affordable housing. And so at Blue Door, we've done that with Parks Canada with a house where Parks Canada has 44 vacant homes on land that they uh, oh, that wow. they have in Rouge Valley. And, and housing is not really what their uh, mandate is. And so we said, hey, you know, can we have, can you work with us? You, They still own the house. Parks Canada still owns the asset, but we've got 20 years of basic rent free that we can then rent to someone affordably and support. Um, and not only, you know, do you get that house? Yes, there's there's volunteer opportunities for people to come and support and do the landscaping and do that. But it also, those social enterprises I talked about, their construction social enterprises, they go and do the work. So in giving them work, you're actually lifting them out of poverty as well, as well yeah. as the people living there. So it's a massive win for everyone involved. You've repurposed an existing uh, assets. Sometimes they're heritage homes too. You know, you put people to the work and giving them purpose and they feel great about the type of housing they're building. And then you're creating housing thousands of nights off the street for a family, a senior, uh, someone fleeing violence, et cetera. Wow. It's very powerful work. I was wondering if you could share what else you're working on. Like, what would you want the listeners to know about what's coming up at Blue Door? Yeah, well, you know what? We will not rest until everyone has a safe place to call home. So we're always looking at innovative and different ways uh, to prevent and homelessness. Currently, right now, it's, we, we, it took us a while, but we were, for if you identify uh, as a youth from the LGBTQ2S community in York region, there's certain needs that you'll have, supports that you'll have. You want to feel safe uh, in your community. And that's this, there's been recent um, research by Seneca uh, College, which was awesome, and by the Canadian Met, uh, by CAMH, um, that supports when they went out and talked to youth from the community. And they said, yeah, I don't, you know, everyone's doing wonderful work. I just don't feel safe there and they're not meeting my needs. So Blue Door actually is opening the first LGBTQ2S housing program in York Region because currently you don't have to go to Toronto, leave your community. There's nothing north of Toronto, right? So this will serve Simcoe, York, nine municipalities and Simcoe and Durham and Peel, right? And so we're, we're starting that program because we saw a gap. We simply saw a gap and we're yeah. filling it. We've got great support from the Odette Fa Family Foundation, Lou Odette's just an amazing, amazing person. Wow. So we're working on that, uh, getting that. And and so also our, our social enterprise construct, we say to people, hey, if you're now, obviously, you know, during the pandemic's a little tougher, but if you're doing work on your home, uh, renovations, et cetera, and we bring in professionals to do the work, but with those professionals, we bring eight trainees. You don't pay for those trainees. They're just there. So why not get great work done uh, for a fair price by professionals, but also be part of the solution now with a social enterprise and those dollars, any revenue we make, because this is a social enterprise for generating revenue comes back is, is another dollar. We don't have to look to the government to, but also that goes to blue door to build more programs and housing uh, mm -hmm. that's there. So, so everyone wins. So we're, we're working on that. And I should say that our, you're hearing it here first is that we've had success with our out of the blue podcast, but we were approached by the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness a little while back. And they said, Hey, we're going to do a podcast, Tim Richter and their, their group who do amazing work. And, and Tim said, but why don't we work together? Are you open to this? I said, of course, this isn't about us. This isn't about Blue Doors, but awareness yeah. and the reach that they have. So that will be launched out of the blue. We'll become on the way home in a partnership wow. with Tim Richter and the Alliance and homelessness to get that to a, a broader audience as well. So that's, that's uh, amazing. Very Congratulations. That's exciting. It is. It is. It's oh, is uh, we, we've incredible. enjoyed 
enjoyed the podcast. And I think we'll, we're hoping our first guest uh, will be the prime minister. So, oh, wow. I'm excited to see <laughs> that, uh, that coming out on your LinkedIn. Oh, that's exciting. Um, and on that fabulous note, <laughs> I think I would just like to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Please go out and check and donate to Blue Door Organization and listen to the Out of the Blue podcast, which soon will have a new name, to hear some incredible stories around homelessness. And please come back to join us soon for another episode of the Loving Compassion podcast with Giselle Trava. See you soon.